Welcome to Joan Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Jackie McMullen, one of the finest sports writers on the planet. Jackie McMullen, one of the deans of NBA writing in particular. She's been at the craft for quite a while now. Veteran of the Boston Globe and Sports Illustrated and now ESPN. And what a great series, a five-part series that she just wrote on mental health in the NBA. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, the first day I jumped on the site, I said, what's this? And started reading and did not realize it'd be a five-part series, but man, so good. Uh, everything from how rookies are have, can have a hard time adjusting to the league to uh, Joey Crawford and referees getting rad, beyond razzed, I mean abused, to... Um, Upbringings of some NBA players and the tough lives that they have to go through to dealing with, uh, OCD, which is discussed, uh, Boston's, former Boston Celtics guard Shane Larkin to revelations by Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and other guys about dealing with anxiety and depression and so forth. So, so good. Uh, if you're a sports fan, if you are, uh, somebody struggling with, uh, mental health issues or, or whatever, frankly, if you're just a person, this is all so, so good and worth checking out. Wow. Jackie McMullen did such a good job on this. And so we get into all that stuff in the podcast. Also a little bit about social media. We kind of went back and forth on why she doesn't use social media or Twitter or anything like that. Uh, I thought that was interesting too. What a pleasure and a delight and an honor to have Jackie McMullen on the podcast. I was uh, one of the highlights of my year, to be honest with you. Really, really enjoyed it greatly. I think you will too. I want to discuss a uh, Sportsline for a moment, friends. For winning picks and fantasy advice, you need to go to Sportsline. They combine simulations with expert analysis to give you an edge all football season. Fantasy football drafts right now. Why the hell are you not using Sportsline? Sportsline members get picks from experts, former handicappers, and computer simulations, and deep fantasy analysis covering who you should draft, add, start, and more. Plus, members have exclusive access to daily fantasy lineups, if you're into DFS, from DFS millionaire Mike McClure. Join Sportsline today and get your first month for only $1 by using the promo code PASS. That's P-A-S-S. Just go to sportsline.com slash join and enter the promo code PASS during payment to get Sportsline now for $1. Terms apply. Visit sportsline.com slash offer for details. And that's it. Go enjoy this podcast with Jackie McMullen. It's really, really good. And you can even stop before you listen to it to read her five-part series at ESPN.com on mental health in the NBA. She's one of the best. Jackie McMullen, before we get into anything, including your recent series on mental health, may I just say I am a huge fan of yours, and it is an honor to and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. So, um, you know, it's interesting. The first piece appeared last Monday, and, and as these things go, there's often no advance warning when there's a cool series or whatever, and ESPN has such a great stable of writers, you know. 
it could have been anybody. I was like, oh, maybe this is going to be a Kevin Arnovitz series. Maybe this is going to be just like great group from ESPN. And then I said, oh, it's a Jackie McMullen series. I wonder how she's going to handle it because you do such a good job connecting with sources, using your access in ways that really tease out reporting in such an interesting way. Uh, when I, most of my, a lot of my pieces are not reporting based, but when they are, you're one of the people that I try to model myself after. How do you go about it? So I'm interested to know because it is such a sensitive subject matter. How did you go about it? Maybe starting with love, because he seemed to have been reluctant at first. So when you first right. came to him, how did you, how did you approach that? How did you target him? Well, I've known Kevin a long time mm-hmm. and uh, we've had our ups and downs. Kevin, I think would say that historically he was a little mistrustful of the media. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I've had to write some tough things and say some tough things about Kevin through the years. But for the most part, I've had great respect for him. And uh, I was in Cleveland. I was in Cleveland to do a bunch of things, including a Kyrie Irving story. But one of the other things I was doing um, was this mental health uh, series, and I had been interested in it for quite some time. And uh, unbeknownst to me that, you know, Kevin was going through some of these things. But I was interviewing Channing Fry, who's his closest yep. friend, probably in the league, and certainly his best friend on the Cavs. And no coincidence, by the way, that he's back with the Cavs. Anyway, Kevin was his locker was right next to Channing, and he was listening to our conversation pretty intently. Mm. And it was clear to me that he was interested in what we were talking about. And as I got up to leave, he looked at me and he said, "Everybody's going through something." Mm. So I thought, okay, well that's a little clue. And uh, did a little research, called around. I was in Cleveland. I was right there. And it became apparent to me that, in fact, Kevin Love did have, uh, he was going through something. So, you know, getting to these guys can be difficult. Uh, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get him at the All-Star game. He was injured. He had a broken hand. He wasn't going to be playing. But I just didn't, I wasn't able to get to him. I just couldn't get to him. So we were in a, a very public setting, the, the NBA All-Star media availability. Hmm. And there were quite a few people around him at the beginning. But no, towards the end of the session, people had moved on. And it was mostly a lot of international media um, that were asking sort of quirky questions. So I thought, well, maybe this is a good time. And so I just jumped in. I just said, have you ever, you know, I asked him a little bit about Channing Fry, And then have you ever seen a mental health professional and he kind of looked at me and he straightened his shoulders and he said, yes. So I immediately, you know, said, all right, now now we got to talk. So we got behind the curtain where in the front of us was every major NBA star you can think of. And behind the curtain, we were, you know, just kind of going over some of the things that he was experiencing. But when it came time to talk about that panic attack, which had happened against uh, the Atlanta Hawks in November, all of a sudden, his demeanor changed quite a bit, and he just, you know, it was clear to me he wasn't ready. And uh, what he did a few weeks later, as everybody knows, he ended up coming out with a piece in the Players' Tribune, and he texted me that morning and just said, you know, I just felt like this was such an important step I was taking. I really needed to say it in my own words. And from then, Kevin and I were in constant dialogue, texting back and forth. Um, when Tyler Honeycutt was killed, um, you know, it, it seemed like it was a suicide. You know, we were texting back and forth about yeah. that. Um, whenever someone came out, Kevin and I were texting forth about it. So mm. it became apparent to me that he was really preparing himself to be the face of mental health in the NBA, and I give him a lot of credit. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of conviction to do that, and there was a lot of negative backlash for him in the beginning, even among his own teammates. Well, it's interesting, too, because the negative backlash, of course, started with the on-court incident because at that point there is no information. All we know is that this guy who's, you know, second banana on a team with championship aspirations is more or less taking a powder, you know? And and 
I, right, I, right. You, of course, uh, you know, been covering the NBA for a long time. I think of the era of what Cornbread Maxwell and Andrew Tony, and somebody says, mm-hmm. see you later. I mean, that would not even be, it would just be, people would be screamed at. And it seems like even though somebody right. like LeBron is so smart and so enlightened, it's kind of the same thing happened. He did not get the benefit of the doubt at that point. So obviously no. there is a backlash and it is hard to come out because your players are going to say that your teammates are going to say that you're soft. Right. And, and, you know, when, when it happened, he was dealing with a lot, a lot of things. Sure. It was all happening at once. And they had a team meeting and he shared, he said, you know, I can't share everything with you right now, but please know that I am committed to this team yeah. and I wouldn't, I don't do something like this lightly. And I, I just, I'm, I can't really share everything with you. I will, but I, but I can't yet. And, and, you know, LeBron was upset and grabbed him and said, Hey man, yeah. are you with us? You got, I got to know you're with us. The, I think the p- disappointing part for Kevin was once he did reveal what was going on you know lebron of course is one of the first you know in yep. one of the i think it's in part five i say he, you know meets and waits lingers at the end of the bus and says hey you helped a lot of people today uh but some of his other teammates were not so enlightened that's after they know everything so we've still got a ways to go with this there's no doubt about that what's interesting too and we're gonna get back to the subject of hank because there's so many top out of five part series obviously but in a weird way reading this made me think about who's going to be the you know, frontline athlete who's going to come out as being gay, that that could be something too sure. professional, what, you know, somebody of that caliber. And this seemed to be a good sign. Maybe I'm reading this wrong, but it seemed to me that somebody coming out with anything, with something that had been taboo before and saying, hey, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with this, it made me encouraged for if there is an athlete of that caliber, of Kevin Love's caliber or baseball, hockey, football player equivalent, that maybe they'll be received positively too. Did you, I mean, I know that you're focused on the task, the task at hand, but did you sense, you know, general acceptance? In other words, did you think, oh, good job by the league, all things being equal for, for taking this on between DeMar and Love and Larkin mm-hmm. and other guys? Well, I think it was hard for a lot. I had a lot of players, really, really big names, yeah. who were aware of what I knew. Yeah. And some of them just said flat out, I'm not going to talk about this, and I don't want you to talk about this, and I don't want to be connected to your story. And, of course, I respected that. The, the yeah. idea was not to out anybody. Um, there were some other really big names that went so far as to let me interview them and then change their minds. And wow. I respect everybody. Mm-hmm. I respect everybody for whatever decision they made because, to me, the idea isn't to, you know, you don't have to be as courageous as Marcus Morris, right? Yeah. But you, you, you just need to get the help you need. And if you do that anonymously, good for you. You know, the idea isn't to, you know, it doesn't mean, it, it's not like, well, it doesn't count if you don't come out and tell everybody about it. Absolutely to the contrary. So, you know, the real, the real job at hand is just to get people who need help to get the help that they need. And, and you know, I, I thought, I really felt like guys like Mar- Markeith and Marcus Morris to be willing to say, you know what, here's what we've been dealing with. I mean, those are two of the toughest dudes in the league, yes. right? <laughs> Nobody messes with them. No. And so that, to me, was was a huge uh, stamp of valid, validity. And, you know, Markeith really didn't want to talk much about it. I respect that. Again, Marcus uh, was, I thought, very eloquent in describing what they've endured in their lifetime and how they're doing now. And I, I, I exchanged texts with him during the series, and, you know, he was he's, he's had a lot of positive feedback. So I think... You know, it's a way, we have a ways to go still, as as, as uh, Adam Silver said, if a player came to him and said, 
okay, I'm willing to get this help, but can you guarantee it won't affect me in free agency? And Adam can't make that guarantee. Nobody can. Uh, as I, I, quoted, I quoted an unnamed GM who said, look, if it's all the same, one player's on medication for ADHD and the other one isn't, I'm going with the other one. Hmm. So there's some things to be worked out here still. I thought the story on, on the Morris twins, and of course there was more to it than that, but it, you know, it's, the right. subject was make, when making the NBA isn't a cure-all for uh, mental health and, and uh, sorry, cure-all mental health and black athletes. And it got mm-hmm. into some interesting subjects of like-minded opinions that, you know, if it's Danny Ainge did not have the same background as Marcus Morris and the, and the GMs are right. in, in every sport, let's face it. Most of them are at this point, they went to Harvard or Yale. They're analytically inclined. Right. Maybe they played, mm-hmm. maybe they didn't. And they're probably white. And, and, you know, to flip it to baseball for a second, the Toronto Blue Jays are going to hire a new manager and they've said flat out, we insist that it be somebody who's bilingual. The manager of the best team in baseball right now, Alex Cora, Boston Red Sox, yep. bilingual. It's, it's something. Yep to be said for representing the population of athletes, and it's not there in the NBA. You do have coaches, but you don't necessarily have front offices and decision makers. Do you think that holds players back from being more open about whatever it is, whether it's their background or what they're dealing with? Because that's such an important thing to find somebody who will say, hey, I see you, I understand you, because we're the same. Well, I do think it's important to some players, but you know, let's take the example of Marcus Morris, for instance. He finally found solace on a team where the coach is white and the GM is white and the majority ownership is white. So I don't know that it's always that way. I think most of the times these players are just looking for someone that will, that will be open-minded about what they're dealing with. And so I'd like to think that that can cross all lines, but I think there are times when players who've grown up in poverty, who have grown up in a, you know, Charles Barkley said like, you know, he, I couldn't believe the way he described it. He grew up in Leeds, Alabama he was raised by his grandparents. He said, I, I didn't know anybody had a two-parent home. I didn't have any parents. Wow. And er- I thought every girl in high school was pregnant because yeah. every black girl in my school was pregnant. And so when you think about that and you grow up in that kind of environment uh, and someone else grows up in a completely different environment, it might be hard for them to relate to you. But that's true in all walks of life, not just the NBA. And so, you know, that's that's part of it too. And the, and the one thing about mental health is, or mental illness, if you want to use that word, yeah. um, which I don't think the players like, and I understand why, mm. it, it really doesn't discriminate. It's just that all the research tells us that if you are a young African-American growing up in the United States, you have a lot of things that are stacked against you because of racial discrimination, because of your socioeconomic background, and because of the things, you know, I go back to those adverse childhood experiences um, that build up before the age of 10 and do so much damage if you keep those bottled up inside you. So if you are a young black male in this country, you have some strikes against you. I mean, we, we the data tells us that. And, and two, you get more opportunity, you could argue, in the NBA than you do in any other of uh, the big four sports in the sense that, you you know, somebody like Towns or, well, name it, anybody, Kobe, Garnett, all these guys, mm-hmm. you're 18 and you could be a star and you're making an obscene amount of money. So maybe you right. have some emotional stunting in your childhood but let's face it whoever you are i was a complete bozo when i was 18 i think a lot of us were and then whether or not you're struggling with something being shackled with expectations with money with fame with adulation right the trey young piece i thought media social media i thought the trey young piece really resonated because here's this kid and if he was just a normal 19 year old kid he'd be a college sophomore and he'd be having a good old time 
And I mean, people right. are just vilifying him because he tossed up an air ball. It's unbelievable yeah, to me. It is. It is unbelievable. And, you know, I think what Oklahoma did, Joe Castiglione deserves a ton of credit for the program that they've initiated at their school. Every student athlete, male and female, when they come to Oklahoma, are automatically enrolled in these mental wellness um, and mindfulness programs that they have set up for their student athletes. And by the way, they're not just for the student athletes, they're also for the coaching staff. Wow. And I, I really, you know, we, we didn't really have enough time in the series to get in too much into what's going on at Oklahoma because it's, it's NBA centric. But, uh, Joe really, Joe Castiglione, AD there deserves a ton of credit for what he's trying to do there. And I know it's happening in other places too. When Billy Donovan was at Florida, he was very proactive. And doing things like that, just as he is now in Oklahoma City. I mean, certainly Oklahoma isn't the only place. But I think what, what Adam Silver's identified, what Michelle Roberts has identified, and what these teams have identified is you need to get these guys, when they're young, right away, before these things start compiling, before they start building up, before you get to a point where, where you know, you're, you're lost and, and you, don't, you don't even know how to stop it. I mean... Some of the stuff that didn't make the series, I had quite a bit of stuff on Delonte West, who I covered here in Boston. And, of course, he went on to Cleveland and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and at one point was deciding that he wasn't going to take his medication because it wasn't going to help him. And, Mm. you know, Delonte West was one of the smartest kids I've ever been around. I always tell this story. When when he was a rookie, um, there was a whole bunch of rookies that year. I believe Kendrick Perkins, Justin Reed, who who very sadly has since passed away. But there was a whole bunch of them. Tony Allen, I think, was one of them. And um, I had the opportunity to go to lunch with them and Red Arbeck. Red Arbeck was taking the rookies to lunch, and I got to tag along. That's fun. And I can tell you that as, as polite as all the other guys were, and they were polite, they they didn't even begin to know how to engage with Red Arbeck. They 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 were stilted in their conversation. Delonte West was a marvel. Wow. So eloquent. He and Red were engaged, and of course they both have Washington D.C. Uh, ties. But listening to them talk, I was mesmerized by this Delonte West. And, of course, he was a very, you know, one of the toughest players you've ever seen. So his story to me was just tragic, just tragic. And we go back and we learn about his childhood. There was a wonderful Washington Post story written about him. And uh, so to me, he, you know, now he's he's a while ago now, but you don't want any more, you don't want any more people to end up like Delonte West, you know. And the Celtics tried. Doc Rivers tried. Danny Ainge tried. And I know the Cleveland Cavaliers tried. Everybody did. But he, you know, he was too far along and wasn't getting the treatment he needed. One thing I will uh, say that it upset me slightly reading these pieces was I was I had in my hip pocket that I was going to do some kind of takeout piece on marijuana and sports, and you did a pretty darn good job. So I'll probably put that on the shelf. You didn't quite go all the way with it because it was within the context of a larger story. But the NBA, right. you know, it's no secret that the majority of players, I think, it's probably safe to say either smoke or take edibles or what have you. And, you know, it's a stress reliever. Uh, I'm a Canadian yeah. who lived mm-hmm. in Colorado and moved back to Canada. You can probably guess my stance on the issue. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it makes sense. It's, it's not going to necessarily be deleterious to your health. It's a stressful environment. It's a good way to bring down pain, all that stuff. But the way that you right. go about it is you say, absolutely, you know, that that can work. But there are cases when what you have can, you know, the THC is not necessarily going to do the job. I thought that was an interesting approach where it wasn't, oh, won't somebody think of the children or whatever. It wasn't a, a moral mm. stance. It was just this might not be the right medication for you based on what you have. If you're Larry Sanders, that's not going to get it done. No, that's it. And, you know, um, John Lucas, I thought he has a lot of credibility when it comes to this, obviously. Um, because he had his own um, addiction issues, and he was pretty clear on it. You know, people think, well, this won't harm you. And he said, yes, it will. Hmm. It kills your spirit. It kills your, 
It kills your passion, just the way that those some of those ADHD medications do uh, that players don't like taking because they feel like they lose their edge. Yeah. So you really feel for those players because what's the balance? You know, you know, you want to be you want to be that maniac that ju- you know jumps into the stands after the loose ball and you know will sacrifice your body yeah. to do whatever it takes to take the charge and the key. But you know that same kind of um, maniacal approach doesn't work when you take a shower and you put on your suit and you got to go out to the real world and it's late at night and somebody comes and says something you know you know you know racial to you or yeah. derogatory to you in a bar and you, you know you pick up a beer mug and you smash it over his head you know. So we're asking a lot. You're asking these guys to be absolute maniacs on the court, and then you're asking them immediately after they're done to turn off that switch and become a very, you know, a low-key, wonderful, um, you know, pleasant human being. I mean, that's a lot to ask. Yeah, Barkley with the plate glass window famously or infamously. Oh, yeah, there's so many. I mean, there's so many guys. And, again, guys that I really can't name, but guys that I watch in the league right now that I know. I know because I watch them and I see what happens to them, you know, in the late hours or after hours. And, and, and you say, wow, if they would only if they would only reach out and, and, you know, accept some of the help that's being offered on the team level, on the league level, on the union level or outside. You know, most teams have come to the conclusion that, look, let's let them get the help wherever they need. It doesn't have to be under our umbrella. In fact, it probably shouldn't be. Mm. So if they want to get outside help, we'll pay for it. We, no questions asked. If you want to go to that psychiatrist or this psychologist, We'll pay for it. No questions asked. You, you don't need to use our team psychologist or, you know, and, they, and a lot of teams now bring in people from the outside and just make themselves available. They drop off the pamphlets. They, leave, they write their cell phone number on it. And, you know, like Marcus Morris, the first time that happened with uh, Dr. Stephanie Pinder Amaker, mm-hmm. who's Tommy Amaker's wife, yep. you know, he didn't call her. But then the next time she came around, everything she said made sense to him. And he finally thought, well, maybe this is someone that can help me. She's African-American. She seems to understand, you know, basketball. She comes, you know, she's married to a basketball coach and who was a former player and who dealt with some of these issues. And, you know, it resonated with him. And it's, it's interesting. A lot of um, teams that I spoke with, they have a female um, African-American as their, their person. It's kind of interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It does resonate in that way. I want to circle back on one thing from uh, a minute ago, too. I feel like if there was a part six to the series, and this might even be as much as the subject that you're uh, tackling is third rail, this is like third rail to the max, which is domestic violence among athletes. So you you just mentioned Mm -hmm. it. you got to be a maniac on the court. Okay, basketball is one thing. How about if you're a football player and you're you have problem CTE sure. is a possibility, and then you got to go at when the game is over and just be this doting husband and, and father and so forth. No, no it, question, no it, question. It's got to be. Impossible. This is not an NBA issue. No. This is a human issue. I mean, this is this is. I were I cover the NBA, so that's the, that's the you know the league I know and the contacts I have, and sure. um, I had worked long and hard to get some of these players to trust me to tell their story. But this, you, you could write this same story about the NFL. You could write about the NHL. You could write about Major League Baseball. Hey, you could write it about Hewlett Packard. And I'm not picking on Hewlett Packard for, for sure. any particular for reason. Sure. I just happen to be looking at you know a box in in my study that says Hewlett Packard on it. I mean, it could be anywhere. And uh, that's just that's just this is society. This is a societal issue. It's it's not a sports issue. It's exacerbated for professional athletes because of social media, because of the fame, because of the money. Uh, because of the hangers-on that are pulling at you, all those things make exacerbate this. But you know, this is uh, this is going. This is everywhere. It's in your neighborhood. It's in your home. It's in your workplace. It's everywhere. The social media thing too, I, I thought was so interesting. The uh, oh, this is a piece in ESPN I just read. I think it was a quarterback for West Virginia 
he he just completely got off social media entirely. And, and here mm-hmm. and there, you say a little. I'm I'm not in this realm, but I got rid of social media more or less. I just have a dummy Twitter account, pretty much. I don't. I did, and it's a totally different thing. But there is a lot to be said for shutting off. That if you have distractions, and and if you're an athlete, especially you have a big profile. Maybe it's not worth your while. Maybe, you know, there's other ways to get your brand across. Maybe you can use the Players' Tribute. Maybe you could just quietly sign a sneaker deal. There was no Twitter 30 years ago. MJ had no problem making right. money. So I, I right. don't know. I wonder if that's if that, if that that's the next shoe to drop. If guys say it's not worth it to be on Instagram, or Instagram's not even a good example because that's a pretty positive environment. But right. Twitter, you get blasted all the time. Maybe it's not worth it. Sure. And, you know, it's funny. I'm not on Twitter. There's, By the yeah. way, for all the people, and I've, I've heard this from I'm not on Twitter. I know this was a a popular topic on Twitter, this series, and I appreciate everybody um, and the comments they made. Um, there is someone out there pretending to be me. It is not me. Okay. So please tell everybody, all your listeners, that if I didn't respond to you, it's because it's not me. Uh-huh. And um, um, don't be offended, and I, I do appreciate all the positive response. But I made a decision some years ago, because um, I'm at the end of my career. I'm, I don't know how much longer I'm going to do this. I'm going to retire soon. Mm-hmm. And I thought, do I really need the headache of this? I don't think I do. <laughs> I've got enough work to do. I've got two kids i got to you know keep an eye on. I don't think I really need this. So... Um, it's a difficult decision to make in our medium because stories yes. are broken on Twitter. Things yes. happen on Twitter. It, uh, but I have people that, you know, I have two kids that monitor it for me and yes. things like that. Um, but it's a decision that I've been very comfortable and happy with. Uh, I have colleagues, female colleagues, and, you know, we get beat up quite a bit on Twitter oh, gosh, if you're in the yes. sports world. And uh, and I've said to them, you know, they're like, it's horrible. I said, well, then get off it. Mm. Well, I need it. Well, do you really? And and listen, I'm not condoning anybody treating women that way or men that way. Yes. I, I don't get it. I've never understood um, the, the viciousness of it. Of But it's anonymity. You know, if you don't have to put your name to it, you can say all sorts of horrible things. Back in my day when I was uh, working at the Globe and covering the Patriots and the Celtics, people should just write me really horrible anonymous letters. It's the mm. same thing, you know. Yeah. And you, you deal with them. You know, you deal with them. I, I do. I, I know. I want to go back to the topic again, but I find this interesting. I want to follow up for a second. Do you solicit feedback? Do you talk to people at the coffee shop? I mean, because if you're not going to do it on social media and not in letters, because I, I like the give and take. I just want the medium to be one that I can enjoy. Do you get into that or is it pretty much, okay, you know, you talk to your league sources and your editors and, and that's the end of that. Neither is right or wrong. I'm just curious from your perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly... I'm out a lot, and, yeah. you know, I've been in Boston most of my career. Yes. Uh, I've worked at Sports Illustrated, I've worked at ESPN, and I've worked at the Boston Globe, but I never had to move. I'm one of the lucky ones. Wow. So I've been in this market my entire life, so I can't really go anywhere, honestly, without somebody <laughs> asking me a question if we're out to dinner or in a bar or at a wedding, even. And uh, and I'm, I'm perfectly, you know, willing to engage in that discourse. And back when I was at the Globe all those years, you know, we had email. People emailed me every day, and I sure. answered every single oh, one wow. of them, whether they were positive or negative, all, every single one of them. And if anyone ever wrote me a letter, I always wrote back. And sometimes the sometimes I just wrote, thanks for writing, although I'm amazed you know how, because they're so critical. <laughs> but I always wrote back. So um, I just don't feel the need to do this at this point in my career uh, with Twitter. I just It's a lot of noise for me that uh, I guess I just – I'm not saying that people who are on Twitter are wrong. They're right. They're progressive. They're young people that are trying to make their way and trying to make their name. And, you know, people at ESPN say to me, well, we need you to get on Twitter. You know, we're trying to grow your brand. I'm like, I'm trying to shrink my brand. (laughs) (laughs) So I understand why people do it. And um, 
you know, but there's a lot of journalists I respect who have made the same decision. I have one of them is Tom Verducci, who yep. I have great respect for. We were colleagues at SI together at Sports Illustrated many years ago. I don't criticize anyone for not for being on Twitter. Some people have made a whole living out of doing it. Some people have made their careers out of doing it, and God bless them. Good mm-hmm. for them. I, I'm not criticizing anybody for doing it. It's just a personal choice I've made. I'm not judging anybody either way. Yeah, and the it's funny in in a weird way. We'll go back to the series. I liked each part of it. Each one brought something, but the one on Joey Crawford, man, it, it really stuck with me. Maybe because. Look, if you're DeMar DeRozan or Kevin Love or whatever, somebody likes you. You know, if you dunk on someone and you're a Raptors fan, nobody likes Joey Crawford because he's a referee. Everybody's going to be angry at the guy. And that, in a weird way, can bring more pressure, more potential self-loathing, more I have to keep my stuff in check when this seven-foot man is yelling in my face than any other. I just thought that was so interesting walking through how it is that they keep their stuff together. I mean, these people have to be... You know, meditation and hot yoga five times a week. How do you even keep your cool? Never mind as a player, as a ref, I would think it would be ten times harder. Right. I loved what Mark Davis said, you know, that when, when you become an NBA referee, they do a full body scan, and there's this little vacuous spot below your heart where your feelings are supposed to be, and if it's empty, you're all set. You're an NBA <laughs> ref. I thought that was great. But, I mean, I and, and I think, you know, I've known Joey a long, sure. long time, long time. And uh, – I actually was speaking to him in Vegas. I was wrapping up the series. I was getting, you know, I was, I had interviewed Trey Young and some other folks and I sat with Joey and I said, man, it must be, I wanted to do a referee, you know, component to it. I interviewed Mark Davis and some other guys. Uh, but then I sat down with Joey and he's like, oh yeah. He said, I, I got Joel Fish on speed dial. I said, who the heck's Joel Fish? And he started telling me that story and then about Stern calling him down you know, and finding him a hundred thousand dollars and making him to go, making him go see a Park Avenue psychiatrist, and so that I thought that would make a really interesting story. And then my NBA editor Christina Daglas and I were talking about, well, this is a little different. Uh, I said, well, what if we do it in the first person? That that seemed like it would be a great way. Then it's all in Joey's voice, right? Yeah. So that required me going back and talking, re-interviewing Joey, of course, and I did that two more times. And the second time that I did that. You know, I said to him, hey, you know, my research tells me that so much of this is deep-seated. It, it goes back to growing up. And, and that's when he, you know, shared with me his mother and, and the terrible depression she suffered and the fact that she had tried to take her life um, a number of times and used to send little Joey down to the drugstore to go pick up her her pain meds. And, you know, to me, that just really added an element of like, wow, mm. this really, you know, so much of this goes back to, how we grew up and what happened to us. And, and, you know, everybody has something, right? Everybody had something happen to them in their childhood that affected them in in a certain way. So I thought that was really brave of Joey to share. Um, I don't think he shared that before. Yeah. You know, I, I've been texting back and forth with him and Kevin Love and Marcus, all these guys that were, were you know, courageous enough to help me with this series. And, and uh, the response for all of them has been overwhelming, and that makes me feel great. But the But the best thing of all is, and Kevin and I have talked about this, is we're hearing from parents of young kids, oh, teenage wow. kids, or mm. who are just, you know, who need, it, who need help and, and have been afraid to go or, you know, I can't do that. People make fun of me. And, you know, this is urge some of them to go, you know, and they'll do it privately. Their friends don't have to know about it, their teachers, their coaches, no one has to know about. It. But just the fact that they're willing to understand now, like, hey, you think even these, these invincible NBA athletes who make millions of dollars – you think they're immune to this? Nobody's immune to this. Nobody. And the We're one, all susceptible. 
For, most definitely. The last thing I wanted to ask you was about language. Obviously, you make your living in language. I do my best to do it the mm-hmm. same way. And we throw around terms when it comes to sports. Right. Yeah, wow, this guy's this guy is crazy. Wow, don't mess with mm-hmm. Dennis Rodman or Rick Mahorn. They're crazy. I, the, I thought the right. Ray Allen thing was so interesting that people referred to Ray Allen as OCD. He just was a creature of routine and became the greatest three-point shooter of all time, or certainly one of the best, maybe before Curry. And, and here mm-hmm. comes Shane Larkin, who actually had a severe case of OCD. I wonder, I hope, that coming off of this series and as we get more awareness – we just won't be so cavalier about how we classify athletes. This guy's a maniac. This guy, maybe right, tone right. it down just a little bit. Well, and it's interesting you say that. So I, I believe it was Robin Lopez in, was it part five? I think he, you know, he said, Hey, if you, if you talk about this as mental wellness, that includes all of us. We can all yeah. address our mental wellness. But when you start saying mental health or, or mental illness, yeah. everyone's like, whoa, 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 not me, not me. Hmm. And uh, that was something Kevin Love and I talked about a little bit too was let's, let's change some of that. Let's, let's talk about mental wellness. Let's talk about mental health. Let's, let's try to get away from mental illness and things like that. And because uh, I think the, the, that, that vernacular matters to these players. There's no question about it. Well, this has been uh, terrific. I highly encourage people to check out Jackie McMullen's series at ESPN.com, a uh, five-part series on mental health. And, uh, dig in. It'll take you some time. Pull up a chair. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Bill, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you.